This morning, I want to I want to take a little bit of a detour from Romans chapter seven and turn to Psalm two. So, if you would, just bow with me for a word of prayer as we begin our time this morning. Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you. Thank you for the privilege it is to just be together. Lord, it's so hard even in other countries for people just to gather together, and we have such a great freedom to be able to do that here. Your hand of mercy and grace has been upon us for several hundred years in this country. It seems as if it might shift from time to time, but right now we have this freedom, and we are thankful for it. Help us to take advantage of it while we have it. Help us to really have that in our hearts as we open the Word of God together we study together about sin and the insanity of it. Lord, this morning we trust that what we learn would be helpful to our lives and helpful as we share the gospel with others, uh, that they too might know Jesus Christ and know the freedom that we have of being guiltless before you, free in Christ, what joy that brings to us. So thank you for your word. Enrich our lives as we study it. For your glory we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm chapter, or Psalm 2. And by the way, you may call these chapters, these are not chapters in the Psalms, they are Psalms. And so this is Psalm 2, not Psalm chapter 2. It is Psalm 2, the second Psalm that we have in the Psalter. And so I just want to begin by reading it for us and have it in our minds. Psalm says this Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take their counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Yet he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. For he said to me, Thou art my son. Today I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, lest He become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Of course, we have been studying through Romans. And the Apostle Paul has been dealing with this whole reality and idea that when he was without understanding, when he didn't realize the reality of his own heart, he thought he was alive. He thought that he was living to the fullest, that he was okay before God, and yet the law said, don't covet, and coveting was revealed in his heart in every place he realized he was actually dead. Sin was the issue. Sin was a major problem. Last Lord's Day, we spent some time really honing in on that idea. How does sin deceive us? Because Paul says in Romans 7 that sin took opportunity through the law and deceived him and through it killed him. How does sin actually deceive us? Last week we looked at that a little bit in our time together. And this morning, 
I wanted to just return to Psalm 2. We've looked at it in the past, but I wanted to look at it again this morning in light of the reality of this issue of sin. And you notice from the title of my sermon, Sin Makes Man So Stupid. I hope that shocks you as a title. I hope it doesn't shock you as a title. I hope you realize that is absolutely exactly what man is. Throughout all of human history, the desire to fulfill the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life has really revealed itself in all kinds of ways that really defy any sense of clear thought from our perspective as Christians. One of the great realities about the Word of God is that when you open the Word of God, it does not try to disguise or it does not try to excuse in any kind of way the reality of sin's stupidity. From the very beginning, Adam and Eve, as we read in Genesis, living in a perfect environment, living in the Eden that God had created, having no need of anything and having a great privilege to actually and in really a miraculous way, talk with God as they walked in the garden in the cool of the day, even though they had all of that at their very disposal, even though it was a perfect environment, incredibly, the stupidity of sin enters in. Man is banished from the garden of God. And... As you read in Genesis, it doesn't take very long for the stupidity of sin to rear its ugly head, to show itself again, because in the first family there is murder, there is deception, as Cain selfishly kills his own brother and attempts to hide it. Sin after sin after sin after sin after sin is recorded about every page of the Bible. Every page of human history we understand sin. Sin continually rears its deformed head. The downward spiral continues. So that because of sin, men, like Psalm 14 said, even deny the very existence of God. Each and every one of us have come in contact with people who have denied God. Either denied His very existence or even overtly turned their backs on God. I was just in the Czech Republic, a country that is an atheist country by far. Everyone, very stoic, everyone, really many, not having any idea of who God is. And so from the Christian perspective, we want to take our hands and put them on their collective necks as a person and shake them until they understand fully. Psalm 2 It's as if we get to just sit back and kind of watch. Almost like a a person in the room at a very important meeting, listening and seeing to the stupidity of mankind. Almost like watching our own Senate Judiciary Committee and their stupidity. I'm sure I'll get some hate mail for that when this goes out on the airwaves somewhere. We're really completely overwhelmed with the shock of it all when we look at Psalm chapter 2 or Psalm 2. It's really shocking to us from this perspective. 
Because it's if, as if we get the privilege here of just watching from a distance the insanity of sin. The insanity of what takes place even in our own heart. And then we get to really be gripped by even something more shocking. And that is this, the undeserved patience of God. We're shocked by sin and yet we should be more shocked at the reality that God is patient at all. And so I want us to really hang our thoughts on four shocking realities. Four shocking realities as we walk through this psalm this morning and think about this whole idea of sin. One is the insanity of sin. The insanity of sin, verses 1 to 3, we'll look at that. Secondly, the God's indignation against sin. Uh, God's indignation against sin, verses 4 to 6. And then the incredible gift in spite of sin. The incredible gift of God in spite of the insanity and ridiculousness of sin, verses 7 to 9. And then the fourth shocking reality is this, this, the impartial request to the sinner. God's impartial request to the sinner, verses 10 to 12. All of this ought to sit, ought to just shock us in our chair. Let's just begin with the first, the insanity of sin. The insanity of sin, verses 1 to 3. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? How are they doing that? The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take their counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. And they say, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. In the mind of the psalmist, the ongoing rebellion of a lost world against God and against His Son is absolutely insane. How could mankind ever think that it is okay to rebel against our holy and almighty Creator? How can mankind ever come to the place in his own consciousness whereby he would say, as Psalm 14 says, there is no God? Yet man does that. In fact, here, the context indicates that the world has, as the psalmist knew it, as he was looking at it, and as we know it now, they're not just saying these things, but rather they are in a constant state of outright rebellion against God. It isn't as if they're just mad at God one day. This is a constant state of of constant rebellion against God. It isn't as if the world is rebellious and was rebellious at one time in the past and they're no longer rebellious against God now. No, this is constantly. This is what the world is constantly. They're constantly that way. And first and foremost, it is a premeditated constant rebellion. You say, how do you know that? Because that's... How verse 1 reveals it. Why are the nations in an uproar? Why are the people devising a vain thing? The word devising there is the idea of meditation. Meditation. It's the same word used in Psalm 1. You probably see Psalm 1 right there on the same page. How blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his 
delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. It's the same word. It's the same Hebrew word in Psalm 2 for devising. The godly man meditates on the word of God day and night, but that is not what the world does. The godly man spends his time and his thoughts constantly thinking about the ways of God and what God would say. His thoughts are consumed with following after God. He's premeditated in his obedience to God. But the insanity of sin is that the ungodly is in a constant state of mind, a constant frame of mind towards a premeditated disobedience against God. We have in our system of law, in our country, what is called crimes of passion. Crimes at which someone out of the passion and flash of the moment does something illegal, does something wrong. It is a reaction to the moment. It is a crime of passion, they call it. It's a crime that's punishable by the penalties of the law and yet has a mitigating factor of the reality that it is a crime of passion. It's not a premeditated reality, but mankind, here the psalmist is saying, mankind is in a continual state of premeditated rebellion against God. It isn't just the crime of passion against God whereby one day they're angry at God and that's why they no longer believe in God. No, this is a premeditated rebellion against God. It is a crime of purpose. One that has been planned. One that has been carried out by deliberate action. It isn't a flash moment. But the sad reality here is this, that it's not only a premeditated crime against God, it is a popular crime against God. It is premeditated, they are devising it all the time, but it is popular. You notice that it says in these verses, the nations are in an uproar, the peoples are devising a vain thing, the kings of the earth take their stand, the rulers take their counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. It is popular. It, is, it covers every socioeconomic strata. Our society and the world around us would like to point its finger in the other direction. It would like to blame others for the reason why it is like it is. We have now the most popular thing going in our country, and that is the victim mentality. It is no longer my fault for what I am or who I am, my socioeconomic status. It's no longer me. It is everybody else's fault. But the insanity of sin is not something imposed upon us by mass. The insanity of sin is not something that comes upon us by outside influence, by pressure from those who are outside of us, within our family or in the society now. The insanity of sin is an internal grassroots movement. Everyone is embracing it and everyone is loving it. We could say it this way, it is a mass movement with popular support. The world stands in one voice against God. Nations, peoples, kings, rulers. 
and it's absolutely shocking to us as Christians. Why? Why is it shocking to us? It's only shocking to us because God has given us eyes to see. What should shock us is the reality that we can see it at all. The world may have a different political system. The world may have different societal structures. They may have different thoughts about national direction and national education. It doesn't matter where you go in the world. They're all going in different ways and different kinds of things. They're thinking about how to orchestrate all that. But one thing the world is single-minded on. The world is single-minded on one thing. We want nothing to do with God. I told you this before about even New Hampshire itself. There was a, uh, my, my nephew had sent me a picture of the United States some time ago, and it had all kinds of things listed on it as to what every state doesn't like. Some states were not liking Reese Cups, and some weren't liking Skittles and whatever else. And when it came to New Hampshire, the one thing New Hampshire hated the most was God. Did you know that? We want nothing to do with God. It is a collective, defiant voice against God and the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 2 says. The nations are in an uproar, verse 1. The people are continually devising this rebellion against God in every kind of way. The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take their counsel together. It is not only premeditated. It is not only popular, but it is very personal. It is very personal. Look at verse 3. Here's what they say. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Who is the there in that verse? It's personal. It's against God. It's against His chosen people. It is against His anointed one. Listen, the rebellion of the world against God is against anything that is truly Christian. It's personal. It's against God and it's against His chosen people. Anything that stands for Christ, anything that smells of truth, let's throw the chains of God's requirements on our lives. Let's break free from His laws altogether. That's what it says. We'll have nothing to do with God at all. That's why I read Psalm 14 this morning. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They've committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven to see on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. But they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. You compare all the men who do not know Jesus Christ by faith, all the people in humanity who who have rejected to follow after Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter where they are on the morality scale. There's no one who does good. No God for me is the mantra of the world. That's the cry. That was the cry of our heart. That's the insanity of sin. It makes you so stupid. Sin makes you so stupid. Modern man finds the Bible 
looks at it and says it's completely unacceptable. I'm not going to believe that. doesn't matter what it says about the sanctity of marriage. It doesn't matter what it says about sexual purity. It doesn't matter what it says about the respect for authority that God has placed over us. It doesn't matter what it says in the home about parental authority. It doesn't matter in any way. Whatever God says is thrown off. Why? Because they hate God. Now, if that's not shocking enough, I want us just for a moment to go back over to 2 Timothy chapter 3, just for a moment. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We've looked at this passage in the past and just in passing. Apostle Paul says, realize this, here's 18 traits that are the outflow of people who hate God, the outflow of difficult times that are going to come in the last days. Are we in the last days? I don't know. But certainly if this list is the very barometer as to which, where we are, I wonder, for men will be lovers of self. Lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents. Some of you young people who think it's no big deal to disobey what your parents tell you, you better look at that again. It's right there near the top of the list. Disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good. Treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And here's the shocking reality of that list. Holding to a form of godliness. Although they have denied its power. And what's the counsel for us? Avoid such men as that. Avoid people like that. Don't be around people like that as Christians. Why? Because they look like they are. They speak as if they are. They speak as if they're godly people. And yet the reality is they're only holding to a form of godliness, but they have no power. They don't have the Spirit of God. It's just words. Avoid such men as these, Paul says to Timothy. Lovers of self, intent on their own interests. That's what that implies. Lovers of money, intent on monetary gain. Boastful, to speak what is not real. That's really what that is. Empty pretenders, that's the idea. People who speak what isn't real, they just boast about whatever. Arrogant, that's just an overestimation of self. Revilers, that's blasphemous. Speaking evil against God, that's what reviling means. Why it says in First Peter that Jesus, while being reviled, didn't revile in return. While people were speaking against God, he certainly wasn't going to do that. Disobedient to parents, that's an apathy to just parental authority in general. Ungrateful, that is just without thanks, being unthankful altogether. With unholy, without any religious character, that's wickedness. Unloving, without any natural familial affection toward one another. 
irreconcilable. That's a, that's a word the world likes to use. Seems like every divorce that goes through, that's irreconcilable differences. You know what that is? Unwilling to come to a truce. That's what it is. I'm just unwilling to give any kind of way. Really, that simply just says, I'm more selfish than you are. I'm going to get it the way I want it. Malicious gossips, that's just false accusers. Literally, literally the word is diabolos, little devils. They're just a little devil. Without self-control, that's no restraint, no contentment. Brutal, unable to tame, haters of good, enemies of goodness, treacherous, that's just betrayers, reckless, literally, reckless means falling forward, falling forward, just reckless, you just go places you should not go, conceited. The literal term there for conceited just means swollen with conceit or actually wrapped in smoke. That's the idea, wrapped in smoke. You're totally enveloped, totally enveloped. You're just swollen with it. You're totally wrapped in it. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Given over to pleasure rather than given over to God. The clincher, the real shock is verse 5, though. Hold to a form of godliness. In other words, they look just like followers of God on the outside, but they want nothing to do with God. That's the that's the personal nature of the insanity of sin. Go back to Psalm two. Because the psalmist says the whole world is united in this. The whole world is directed in this. It's, it's everybody. It's from the highest echelons to the lowest echelons. It is kings and rulers and people, nations. The whole human race united in, in, a, in a singular voice in rebellion against God's rule. That's the insanity of sin infected everybody. In fact, Genesis says the before the flood, the thoughts and intentions of the heart of man were wicked all the time. That same sin came through. And so you see God's indignation against it in verses 4 to 6. He who sits in the heavens just laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And then he'll speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. That's not the psalmist talking. That is God talking. In spite of the sinful rebellion against him, God remains unsurprised, unshocked. In fact, much to our own shock, we look at the scene. God just laughs. The foolishness of man to reject God, to hold their fist up at God, God just laughs. He scoffs. He laughs. He scoffs. He speaks from his anger. God's response is to just laugh at me. What a fool. He doesn't hide. He doesn't begin to count how many there are against him. Gee, I wonder if I can overtake them. 
doesn't wonder if he if he's got enough angelic forces to actually come upon men and really come against them now he just sits and laughs what fools did you know in the entire bible scour the bible all you want in the entire bible this is the only place in the entire bible where it says god laughs and what is he laughing at the insanity of men who think he is worthless His laughter is not based on humor. His laughter is not based upon something that's funny. For God, this is a laugh at the foolishness of man to try and rid himself of God. How foolish it is for you to try and say, God doesn't see me. God doesn't hear me. God doesn't exist. How stupid. I was reading some years ago illustration scientists who in their wisdom try to think they can create and in kind of a satirical way they one day spoke with God told him they didn't need him anymore he man had figured out where life came from they began to do all kinds of gene splicing and figured out a way all the complex systems of the human race, growing humans in a test tube, and they tell God, we don't need you anymore. We don't need you to create. We have it all under control. God says, okay, go ahead. Make something right now. Scientist leans down, picks up a pile of dirt. God says, nope, wait a minute. You need to go get your own dirt. Right? God laughs. God just chuckles. Go ahead. You think you're so smart. You think you got everything. You think you got it all covered. But you're insane. You cannot rid yourself of me. You cannot scientifically figure out some kind of way whereby I do not exist. It all points to me. It is insane to think I'm not around. I just laugh and scoff. And all of that laughter and all of that scoffing is turned to wrath. Because verse 5 says, Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. God looks at the sum of mankind He listens to their futile commands to rid themselves of him. And he answers from his righteous anger. And mankind has one response, to be terrified at his wrath. Psalm 5.5 says, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes, because you hate all who do iniquity. Psalm 7, verse 11. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. Indignation every day. Notice verse 12 and following in that same psalm, Psalm 11. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. That is God. 
He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, he travails with wickedness, and he conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood. He's talking about men. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out. He has fallen into the hole which he made. In other words, the foolishness of man to think that he can do stuff and, and, and escape. His mischief will return upon his head. His violence will descend upon his own. That is the indignation of God against sin. The insanity of sin is that man thinks they can rid themselves of God. And God is angry. He's angry every day. Psalm 7 says, Man wants control, but he will not have it. And God, thankfully, says in verse 6 of Psalm 2, As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mount. You want control, but I'm not going to give it to you. I have control, and I have installed my king. We may live in a world that does not want God. We may live in a world that rejects Jesus Christ, our Savior. But we live in a world where God has permanently established his king. It doesn't matter what's going on around us. It doesn't matter how insane it may seem. It doesn't matter how out of control it might appear. God has established his king. And the psalmist, in Psalm 2, these are words of anticipating the coming of Jesus Christ to this earth. And really foreshadowing the reality of the second coming of Christ when He will come and rule as King upon the earth. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1 to 10 clearly show us that as we study through it. Jesus Christ will come and rule on this earth for a thousand years. So we're shocked at the insanity of sin. We're shocked at the indignation of God at sin. And we get the third reality here, the incredible gift because of sin. Incredible gift because of sin. Verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. For he said to me, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. For you will break them with a rod of iron. You will shatter them like earthenware. What God has divinely set forth through his plan, through our Savior Jesus Christ, he will execute. And all of the climaxes in the Father giving the Son a universal inheritance will come about. Christ is saying here in verse 7, this is a, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, I will tell of the decree of the Lord and he, that He said to me, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. This is the eternal Godhead giving us a glimpse into the glories of what is to come by way of redemption through Jesus Christ before Jesus Christ ever touched foot on the earth. Jesus Christ, what the eternal Godhead has planned, Jesus Christ came and 
proclaimed. So right here, even in Psalm 2, there's an inseparable unity between the Godhead, the very inseparable unity that we are going to see when we get to John chapter 16 in our evening time is the very same unity between the Godhead that we see happening right here in Psalm 2. When the Father speaks, Jesus speaks. And when the Father speaks, the the Spirit speaks. And when Jesus speaks, He only speaks what He hears from the Spirit. And what comes from the Father, there's this inseparable unity between the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. And so Psalm 2, Jesus Christ is the uncreated, eternal Son of God. Jesus Christ, who through his incarnation, through his becoming man, became the Son of God in humanity. Didn't become the Son of God in eternity. He was already that. He became the Son of God in humanity and was manifested as the Son of God through his resurrection. He graciously is the Son of God as the eternal chosen King. That's exactly what verse 8 is saying to us. Ask of me and I will surely give thine the nation as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. Jesus Christ, when Satan was tempting him, refused the kingdoms of the world. He would not take those, but there is coming a day when God the Father will give them to him, when he will be the ruler of everything, the sovereign ruler, and he will break them to pieces. The world can stand against God. They can stand against Christ now. The day is coming. It's coming quickly. And they will be forever defeated. Gone. In fact, John 6 tells us that all that the Father has given Christ as an inheritance, all those whom God has sovereignly chosen to save, none will be lost. They will be his eternal possession. They are his eternal possession. But the rest, the rest will be condemned. An eternity of unending wrath. Frightening. One day, the ultimate accuser will be marching across the world with his deceived armies seeking to rid permanently those who follow after God. And yet in the very next moment, he'll be gone. Christ's judgment will have been executed with a crushing blow, just as Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 says. He will crush him. Revelation 19.15 says this, And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. God doesn't have to send his son. He didn't have to do that, and yet this is the incredible gift because of sin. Without the son, none of us would be spared. 
All of the insanity of sin would be upon us forever and ever and ever. Without the Son, we would have no hope. All have gone astray. No one seeks after God. They have all gone their own way, Romans chapter 3 says. The most shocking thing about all of this is that God doesn't just annihilate all of humanity. Instead, he sends his son to seek and to save that which is lost. Rather shocking, isn't it? We can never forget that it is the will of God that his son have a great heritage from the lost world of man. And it is our task as Christians simply to carry that message across the world wherever we go, regardless of what it might cost us. We proclaim the very thing the Psalm 2 is saying, the incredible gift of God in spite of the insanity of sin. That's what makes the last shocking reality so shocking. God's impartial request to the sinner. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Now, there's the kings, there's the rulers. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, lest He become angry and you perish in the way. Because His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. This is an amazing request. It's an amazing twofold request at that. The request is this. Wake up. Pay attention. Wake up. Realize what's here. Realize your sinfulness. Wake up and worship God. God takes no pleasure in judging men. He would rather save than judge. That is why he says in verse 11, Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. And in the first part of verse 12, Do homage to the Son. God would rather you worship than be judged. In other words, take the Lord seriously. He's not joking. This isn't laughable things. Embrace the Son or you will perish. This is the impartial plea of our gracious God. We know that God says to us, go into all the world and preach, right? Teaching them, making disciples, teaching them all that I have taught you. And yet here we find God in Psalm 2 preaching the gospel and saying, listen, embrace the Son. Embrace the Son or you're going to perish. Don't be so foolish. Turn to the Son and live. This is as if God is grabbing every man, every woman, every child by the throat and by their shirt and shaking them and saying, don't be so insane. Don't look at all that foolishness. Embrace the Son. Would you please embrace the Son? The 
Apostle John said it in John 3.36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. That's what the psalmist is saying right here. Embrace the Son or the wrath of God abides on you. All believers must give attention to the invitation by God to believe in his Son. Mankind will never be able to rid themselves of God, ever. His kingdom is invincible. His kingdom is everlasting. One man said it this way some years ago. I think it's a fitting way to close our time. He said this, Be wise now. Therefore, Be instructed now. Kiss the son lest he be angry. The world has not seen the last of Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming again. He's going to come back as a sovereign, omnipotent king. And he's going to be joined by the armies of heaven. And today, he's offering you amnesty. But the amnesty is not going to last forever. One day it will be withdrawn. And then all men will face Christ as God's sovereign avenging king. Sin makes us so stupid. Why war against God? Why fight? Embrace the sun and live. Let's pray together. Father, we... Think about our own life and the gracious hand of you upon it. How each one of us were in a condition of lostness, rebelling against you continuously, just like the world does around us. And we sit here this morning and we can hear these words and we can say, I'm thankful that that is not me. And while there is truth in that, it's far too often we allow sin to take its effect and we are just like we used to be. Oh, not fully lost, not eternally lost, but certainly rebellious as children who will face the chastening hand of a gracious Father cause us to once again see the foolishness of our sin. Yet here in Psalm 2, we see the ridiculousness of the world around us. You see, the foolishness by which we were part of and the foolishness of the world to try to turn their back on you, to push you away, to, as Paul said in Romans, suppress the truth and their unrighteousness. You just laugh. They mock you, they deny you, and yet you just laugh 
And one day the terror will come upon them as they realize that all their foolishness has come to fruition and the payment is now due. And they will face the sun. His wrath will be upon them. You today have offered this gracious gift. Open the eyes of those who may be here in our midst who do not know Jesus Christ. Shatter the, the blindness. Let the blazing light of your grace shine upon their heart. Open their heart to know their sinfulness that they might run to you and embrace the Son, repent of their sin, and know life. Lord, for those who are saved or walking in rebellion, we pray that you would convict their hearts this morning that they too might repent of their sin and walk in newness of life and see and understand the new mercies that you have for them as a patient, loving Father. Help us all to embrace the Son, lest He be angry. That the world might know that our God is the living God, the only God. That they might turn to Jesus Christ and not know an eternity of hell. Lord, help us to take this message to all that we know, that you might be glorified in these things we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.